and people fixate on like, well, why does Lot, you know, offer his daughters <laughs> instead yeah. of these men? It's because of rules of hospitality mean that he has to protect his his guests at all costs. You are listening to End If Love Remains, a unique show spotlighting people, ideas, science, culture, and art. Your host, Mike Lovett. Mike Lovett. Hello, Rachel. Yes, this is your great podcast in the sky, And If Love Remains, and I am your friendly neighborhood host, Mike Lovett. Good to be with you and uh, really happy to back to have back on the show Dr. Cynthia Schaefer Elliott. Um, Dr. Schaefer Elliott is at uh, Baylor University in Waco. Um, she specializes in the historical, cultural, and social context of ancient Israel and Judah, particularly within domestic contexts, and, uh, um, which she then uses as a lens for reading biblical narratives set in the monarchic period. And I'm really excited to talk to her about these, these fields and what she's into and, and just, uh, um, you know, how these, how, what we can learn from these, uh, great ancient individuals and family. So great to have you on, Cynthia. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So uh, just as a quick, quick recap, um, maybe give a, give us a, a short, like how you got into this field and, and what, what drives your passion when it comes to archaeology and, and specifically um, the, the archaeology of ancient Israel. Yeah, I grew up in a Protestant Christian home and, um, you know, I, my, I just was reading the Bible all the time and, and not just from like a devotional perspective, but I was just fascinated with the history and literature and how life was portrayed. And, um, and then when I got to college, I went to, um, I did a class in Israel and I did a dig for a day and we found nothing, <laughs> but I like to say I found a passion and yeah. maybe that's more important. I don't know, but um, I just loved how archaeology was um, history that you could put your, your hands on, that you could touch, that you could feel. And um, so I've been really pursuing it ever since. And now and well, not now, but for a number of years, I've been a professor and I get to share that passion with others and I love it. Um, I could not imagine myself doing anything else. So I'm, I'm a professor at Baylor now. The last time we talked, I was at Jessup, uh, which is in Northern California. And now I'm in Texas at Baylor and I still work in Israel um, on excavations and I'm interested in how archaeology of Iron Age Israel, which is really roughly from about 1200 BCE to 586 BCE. Um, I'm really interested in how ancient Israel and Judah, how they lived, what was their daily life like, uh, both men and women and children. And that includes food and um, diet and economy and um, religion and all sorts of different things. So I kind of dabble in lots of things related to daily life. That's great. That's that's really interesting. It's you know when 
when I read the Bible or, or when I think about even historical figures, so many times, you know, you think of them as either archetypes or you think of them as, you know, not real people, but, but it's gotta be really fascinating to actually delve into the reality of these living individuals that, that, um, came before us and, and how their lives were in some ways so much different and so, and in other ways, probably very much similar to, to our own. Yeah, I think the things that, you know, truly matter that you can't quite excavate <laughs> are, are probably the same, you know, as yeah. far as, you know, your your the people in your life that you love and wanting to raise your kids and um and being healthy and safe and um uh, all sorts of things related to, you know, what makes life, you know, wonderful. But when we excavate, you know, we can't really find that stuff, of course. But the stuff that we do find is the stuff that they left behind. And for me, it's it's the stories behind the artifacts. So some archaeologists are really interested in, in how a certain, let's say, a cooking pot was made. You know, what kind of clay did they use? How did they, what was the temperature of the fire? And all sorts of like details. And I think that stuff is important and fascinating. But for me, I'm more interested in, um, I guess, the social science side mm -hmm. of, you know, who made it and why did they make it? Who used it? And why did they, in what ways did they use it? And what kind of meals were prepared in that cooking pot? And who did they feed it to? And was this a special occasion or an everyday meal? Things like that. Those are the things that interest me. And um, and that's where you use, you know, the Old Testament or Hebrew Bible as well and other uh, texts, other ancient Near Eastern texts, because while the stuff on the ground is the stuff they left behind. That's not stuff they intended to leave behind. The texts are stuff that they intended to leave behind. Um, and so you have to, you, you want to use everything at your disposal to try to understand that world as best as we can, you know, with our limited knowledge. Um, because when they're writing stories about a particular person in the Hebrew Bible, let's say, and they, they don't assume that people thousands of years from then were actually who, who live in a totally different <laughs> continent right. are going to be reading these things. They're, they're reading, they're writing it, assuming that whoever the audiences are know certain things. And so they don't describe, Oh, so-and-so used this type of cooking pot to make this meal. They don't explain that stuff. They right. assume that the readers or audiences know these things. And so it's up to us to try to fill in those gaps. That, that, you know, that's really fascinating. I, I was thinking as you were talking there uh, about that, like how would you determine even, even innocuous things like what, what are these things for? And, and uh, um, I know often when I've watched, you know, different archeological programs or, or YouTube videos, and I'll say, you know, this was a toy or this was this, it's like, well, how do you really know that? And, yeah. and, and I think one example I, I of today, um, I had a, a, a friend of mine, Mark Ainley on that talked about feng shui. And, and one of the things he talked about was these little 
cats that you see, you know, <laughs> these little feng shui cats that, that you see in businesses and they're supposed to give you good luck. And it's just this waving hand cat. You've, you've seen exactly what I'm talking yes. about, I'm sure. Uh-huh. You know, and you know, I, you know, a thousand years from now, somebody may find that and go, well, that was a child's toy. When in fact, it was more of like a good luck charm. Like and it's, it's got to be difficult to kind of figure out what these items are. Yeah. And that's when you need to look at patterns, like, and you need to compare. So um, like parallels from different. So you, you don't want to take what you find just at your site and make a whole theory based off of it. You want to look at other sites who have found something similar and you want to look at within your geographical context. And then you kind of want to broaden that scope and go, okay, they had something similar to this in a different kingdom in the ancient Near East. Mm -hmm. Um, And sometimes, you know, when people find a similar artifact in a different location, um, the context of where it's found is really important. So the, so what I mean by that is if let's say we, we find this artifact that looks that one archeologist thinks is a toy. Let's carry on with that example. And then let's say they find a similar thing, similar artifact at a different site, but it's not found in a house. Let's say it's found in um, like a, a temple or a shrine, a religious context. And so then you have to go, well, wait a minute. We found it in a house and these other people found it in a religious place. So maybe, maybe it wasn't a toy. Maybe it has a religious dimension to it or maybe, and this, we always have to remember this things were also multifunctional. So the, it's like a, you know, how today a lot of houses have, you know, a dining room, right? right. Or um, if you have a large house and you're into crafts, maybe you have a craft room. Well, ancient Israel, you know, they didn't have that. Right, right. <laughs> their, their houses were multifunctional and space was used, you know, in a variety of different ways. And we need to think that way about artifacts too, is that you know, they, they may not, they probably didn't have just one use. They might have had, it might have been used in one way a lot more than another way, but um, it could have had, it could have multiple uses. And so when we, we need, what we do is we need to, we compare things from different sites in order to come up with theories about how a thing was possibly used. What, what are some of the um, from your perspective, and maybe these are kind of technical and that's okay, but, but what are some of the exciting <laughs> theories or ideas or, or, or kind of cutting edge things that, that you're working on or that, um, that is in your industry right now that, that you're finding exciting? Yeah, well, some of the stuff that's really exciting um, is not really stuff I'm doing. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> There's so within, you know, the archaeology world and more specifically the archaeology of, you know, ancient Israel and Judah, um, within the last probably 20 plus years or so, um, 
a lot more of the sciences have gotten involved with archaeology. So archaeology is, you know, you got your social side, like what I'm interested in, but then you also have your, your hard science side. And you get people who specialize in animal bones. We call them zooarchaeologists or um, botanical remains. So, um, you know, microarchaeologists. So the botanical remains, so say if we're excavating and we find carbonized uh, pits, let's say olive pits, Uh um, you have people who specialize, scientists who specialize in, in that. And we take those pits to be, um, we send them to different labs to be radiocarbon dated. And that's really exciting. And then you have people who look at animal bones who can say, oh, you know, not just, hey, this is a sheep or a goat, but they could tell you all sorts of fascinating things. Like there's butchering marks on this and it can tell us and it could tell them so much information about, you know, economy and diet and what type of animals were raised and how old the animals were if they were butchered. Um, And so then that tells us a lot about, you know, the stability of the town, what their economy was like at that given time. Um, You also have people who specialize in like animal teeth. I've got a friend who specializes in animal teeth (laughs) and what she can tell you about that animal just from their teeth is just amazing. So I really admire those people because that's, I just don't have that type of brain. Um, (laughs) But what they do is super important. Well, and it seems like it would very much inform your area as far as like telling you, like you said, you know, how, you know, how quickly did they have to butcher an animal or what, what even, even maybe like what parts of the animal did they enjoy or what was a specialty or what was used for a special occasion or something. And the age of the animal. Yeah. That determines a lot too. Interesting. Yeah. So that's really fascinating stuff. Um, But the stuff I do is, is more, you know, related to, um, you know, uh, gender and food and um, household religion and stuff like that. So not so much the sciencey side of things, although that stuff's important. And I do try to use uh, their research uh, whenever possible. Um, but that's like the stuff that I think is really exciting right now. What what does what do you find you know speaking of of gender specifically um, you know because because there's there's this idea of um, you know uh, you know women's roles in the Bible specifically I mean that's probably what's going to inform most of my listeners is is the Bible when it comes to this these contexts um, you know but but there's also really uh, you know incredible um, strong women in the Bible. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, there's a, there's a lot of diversity when it comes to, so what, what kind of things are, are generalities or what kind of things can you, can you tell us about, um, gender roles and, and family living, uh, during that time that, that maybe would interest us? Yeah, that's a great question. I think the old Testament Hebrew Bible, you know, has, a multiple of voices who are writing and it's usually, you know, ancient people didn't, 
you know, a lot of people didn't know, most people didn't know how to read and write. So a lot of what we have written was written much later by scribes. So and scribes are part of the elite circles and they live in the cities and their lived experience is very different than the lived experience of your regular people, right? right? And so we have to take that, keep that in mind. Anytime you look at a text is, you know, texts in the ancient world are written by, you know, elite men who are educated and most of your population's not. And they usually live like in the capital city. So more like kind of urban environment. Right. Um, And your average ancient Israelite didn't, you know, they were uneducated. They by our standards of like formal education. Um, They were largely, you know, illiterate um, by our standards. Um, And they lived in rural environments and they lived in um, multi-generational families. So very different than the world we live in today. And we also need to remember that if they're, if it's a rural environment, most of these families are farmers. We call them agro-pastoralists. So they're doing agriculture. That's the agro part. And pastoralists is the raising of, of herds, you know, of animals, primarily uh, herds of sheep and goats, maybe some cattle, maybe, you know, it depends on how wealthy you were. <laughs> but everyone had a little bit, you know, especially sheep and goats and maybe one or two muscle animals. Um, but their daily life revolved around the, you know, agricultural calendar. Um, and that, you know, they're, they're farmers. They were farmers. They were, you know, living off of the land. And the land was really could be often inhospitable. I mean, if you know, you and I are both originally from California and we're used to droughts. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and same with ancient Israel. They had a lot of drought and they were living in hill country that was really steep and rocky and very difficult to live on. Um, and so the fertility of your land and of your animals and of your people was really important. And one, you know, household could consist of, um, you know, grandparents, their married sons and their families, any unmarried children. So you could have, you know, three generations of a family living together in one probably small house. Um, And then as far as like gender roles, um, it seems from both archaeology and from the Hebrew Bible and from other ancient Near Eastern texts and from so there's this field within anthropology called ethnography and ethnography is is basically people watching okay <laughs> uh, right. you know so you so instead of going to the mall and watch people or the airport you would go and you would observe some society or village or or what have you and so um when it comes to like ancient Israel, we anthropologists might go and observe a small rural village in like Western Iran or Jordan or even a Palestinian family, nomadic family, Bedouin family. 
Um, and so we just observe them for extended periods of time and try to say, think about, okay, how, how they lived, does that help us understand how their ancient ancestors lived? And it can. Um, so what we've observed in all, using all those elements of research, so many strands, it's not just like one strand, but many strands of evidence that show that people who lit, who are basically subsistence level farmers, uh, they make just enough to survive and maybe store enough for the next season. That's what we mean by subsistence. That ancient Israel were subsistence level farmers. And in that case, you don't really have the luxury of gender roles. Right. Because it's all about survival. And if it's all about survival, you don't really care <laughs> so yeah. much about who's doing what because everyone, it's all hands on deck. Yeah. Everyone has to participate in the survival of the family. And it, regardless of your age, regardless of your sex, regardless of any other differential, it's everyone helps the family survive. And in that world, you wouldn't have really, there's not like the sense of individuality like we have today. You were who you were based on who your family was. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And so, but the only kind of caveat to all that would be like the female reproductive role. Right. Because of course she can do things that men can't do. Right. (laughs) um, And she has special needs because of that. And right. Exactly. So a woman's not going to be out plowing a field if at eight months pregnant Unless she absolutely has to. So when I say like absolutely has to, you do have to think about uh, in times of war. Right. In times of war, the men would be called up to go to war, leaving the women and the children and the elderly at home. And so everyone has to know how to do everything in this world. Um, Now, granted, women, if they're pregnant, or have just given birth or are breastfeeding or weaning a child, the household survival tasks that they're doing, they might have been kind of closer to the house as opposed to on a daily basis, as opposed to like out in a far field or something like that. But, you know, there are certain times of year where planting and harvest where regardless of, you know, unless you just gave birth yesterday, (laughs) you're out there helping. So I think it's hard for us today because we think, we try to think that the biblical world was how we think is, like how it is to, how it is for some people today. And I think we would all be really surprised if we could travel back in time you know, how, what the reality of the situation. I, I, yes, I think you're right. That's, that's really fascinating. Um, as you were talking, I was thinking about the, the idea of being a subsistence level person or family or group, um, and what that would be like. And, and I'm, I'm curious, um, what do we learn about, um, how, you know, I, I, you know, and, I, and this might be impossible to, to to tell, but you know, obviously we have people today even that are subsist, subsistence level, even in America that are are 
pretty subsistence level, like, you know, yeah. um, we would, we would say so, so, but there's, so there's always a, you know, the Bible says the poor will always be among you. So, so there's always a percentage that are at that level. Um, what kind of percentage are we talking about of a population might be at that level and, and, and how, what were some techniques or what were some things that we find that to help them, um, you know, cause obviously they all didn't die. So how did, how did they, how did they, how did they store food? Is it, is it kind of that, that salted meat thing? Like, what did they do? What kind of things did they do to preserve, to, to survive during times of drought? Right. So you've got times of drought and pestilence. You also have invading armies. So it really also depends on like what the socio-political situation would have been at the time. So like, if you think about Israel when they were independent versus when they were uh, under the thumb of the superpower, like the Assyrians or the Babylonians. So that's, that would have created some difference. Sure. Um, yeah. So, I mean, most of your average people would have eaten more of a vegetarian diet uh, because meat, your the animals that you have, you would have been dependent upon those animals for their secondary products. And by secondary products, I mean like their milk, their fleece, their dung. So their milk, you would have used one for milk. Uh, you would have used it to make cheese. You would have used it to make yogurt and, um, you know, all sorts of things. Right. Um, so it, you, you're not, and you would have used their dung. You would have dried their dung to use as fuel for your, the fires, mm -hmm. like your fire in your oven. So you could cook. Um, you would have had, um, you would have used their fleece to make, you know, your clothes and blankets. So just because you have a hankering for a lamb chop, <laughs> you're, <laughs> you're not going to butcher that animal, especially if you have a small herd. If you were wealthy, you know, and you had a large herd, then you then could. Then you kill a fatted calf when it's right. a party. <laughs> Right. And so hospitality is like a whole nother thing. Oh, yeah. That's interesting. I want to ask you about that. But yeah, yeah. Yeah. It, it's a bit. So, but everyday life, you would have, and it, of course, you would have eaten seasonally too. So you're, you're not, you don't have access to things out of season unless you've dried it in some way. Um, but you also have to think about like you could store things in a storage jar. Or in a storage pit, a lined storage pit, but little critters are going to find that storage too. Right. So you got to think about that. Um, but most, I think, everyday food would have been cereals that you would make into porridge or uh, make into bread. So bread would have been big, right? Yeah. Um, the Hebrew word for bread is lechem, and that also became like a general word for food. So if you think about Bethlehem, it's actually two words. It's beit lechem, meaning house of bread. Oh, wow, yeah. Um, so bread is like a big deal. But also another thing that's a big deal that doesn't get nearly enough attention are legumes. So legumes would have been like a cheap, um, very like economical way um, to eat. You could store, dry them and store them easily. Uh, you would 
you can make them into a paste. You can make put them in a stew because I think most of the the day the nighttime daily meal would have been like some sort of stew. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you had leftover meat from like a special occasion, because that's when you would really reserve your meat. It's not that they never ate meat. It's just that you know you had to have a really good reason, whether you were culling your herd. Or maybe it was hospitality, or maybe it was a special religious occasion, or maybe it was a wedding. So you know, you would eat it, but it it wouldn't be it wouldn't be like what carnivores do today. Like you have meat at every meal, or at least once a day. You know that wouldn't have been the case. Yeah, uh, because you needed those animals, right? And especially if they were midsize or large, you know, you needed, you, they, they were working, they were part of the family. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And um, so we, yeah, we kind of got to think a little bit differently about that life. It's very, very different from our own. So when people say they want to have a biblical view of, you know, they want to live in a biblical way, I think, no, you don't. <laughs> <laughs> You have no idea what you're asking for. <laughs> you wouldn't have lived very long. It would have been really difficult. You wouldn't have, you know, the rights and privileges, especially yeah. unless you were a free man. Um, which was you, rare at best. Which would have, you know, yeah. And even if you were a free man, you were you were poor. Yeah. You know, the Hebrew Bible focuses a lot on monumental people like kings and military leaders and priests. And those are not your everyday people. You know, it's interesting that you're right. Like when, when you read the Bible and you, you'll read about somebody like Abraham, you mm-hmm. know, or, or somebody like, um, um, oh, oh, what is his name? Um, um, Moses's father-in-law um jethro yeah jethro one name there's another name for yeah but you you, uh you 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 see these people as kind of like you know uh not country bunkins but but just like like they're out there they're just they're in their tent and they're they're living a good life and they got their animals and and that might be true but that was because they were like the patriarchs they were like the the dudes (laughs) you know they were the kings they were not they were they were they were not uh, just your everyday you know. Uh, yeah, not well, everybody Jethro was, was a priest of Midian, right? Um, you know, and 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 the the ancestor period that you see in like Genesis, you know, they're nomadic, you know, so they're moving around in tents. Once Israel enters the land and they settle in houses, you know, it's it's different, but it's not entirely different mm-hmm. you know so yeah well let's talk a little bit about um uh I, i'm also fascinated by the the idea of um hospitality because yeah, um <laughs> it's well it's so from what i've read and what i understand um which is really limited but it, it's so different you know here today like i barely know my neighbors I, mm-hmm. you know, um, uh, if somebody comes to the door, I'm kind of annoyed by it, you know, it's, it's all, and, and yet that is not the case. Um, and, and, and it's, it, these, these almost re, uh, maybe they were religious customs, these customs that people had when, when, when somebody came a knocking, like, can you talk to about that a little bit? Yeah, sure. So as far as hospitality goes, 
Um, it, I mean, well, your, your average Israelite would have lived, you know, with and near, with their, you know, household, which would have been family and maybe people who weren't family, like people who, you know, slaves, or hired workers or something like that. But if whatever kind of rural village you lived in, that village would have been more than likely, not entirely, but more than likely people related to you in some way. So you would have known your neighbors and stuff. But mm-hmm. rules of hospitality when it comes to the stranger um, is very different. Um, so, you know, when we talk about hospitality, it would have been more for the stranger than for the people you know. Right. I mean, because, yes, you would have been hospitable to the people you know. Your Israel was worked in a, a kinship way. So everything was seen through the lens, you know, it was, everything was like about who you were related to and taking care of your household, your clan, your tribe. It was very like their social structure was very kinship oriented. That's one thing. The other thing is what do you do with the people that you're not related to? So if a stranger comes through, is walking through your land or you somehow meet them, um, they're in your territory, they're in your land, rules of hospitality would still dictate that you are hospitable to them because rules of hospitality would help you determine if this stranger was friend or foe. And if they're foe, if there's a way, if you're hospitable to them, then maybe they, you can turn them into a friend. <laughs> right, right. Um, a friend of mine is actually writing a, a book about this right now. So um, oh. I can't wait till she's you know done. Um, but anyway, the kind of rules dictate that it's the, the patriarch of the household um, who offers hospitality to the guest and and the guest is supposed to refuse the first time, but then upon the second invitation, they accept. And some of the other rules include that the host is supposed to offer, come in, have some rest, have some bread, have some water, um, and then they wash their feet. And when you wash their feet, it's kind of like not only are you cleaning their feet, but it's almost like a symbol as they're part of your household now for the duration of the time that they're there. And usually the duration is like three days. Um, So that means they're part of your household. And as part of your household, you have to do everything you can to protect and care for them, just like your own children. Right. So then, but you offer your least, but then you prepare your best. So you go, instead of just, you offer bread and water, but you just go, instead of giving them bread and water, you go and prepare a big feast. And usually that includes, you know, meat. Right. Which is a special occasion. Uh, And then as the host, you're not to ask your guest about any of their business. And then the guest, likewise, is also not supposed to impose on the host or ask anything of their business. Okay. And then when you you leave, usually about three days later, you're so as the guest, you're supposed to impart a blessing on the host and his household. So when we get things of hospitality in the Hebrew Bible, one particular episode uh, 
that comes to mind is when Lot receives the divine messengers in Genesis. Right. And a lot of people fixate on um, how the men of the village wanted to um, have, you know, homosexual relationship with these men, with these divine messengers. And they fixate on the sex part. Well, and people fixate on like, well, why does Lot, you know, offer his daughters <laughs> instead yeah. of these men? It's because of rules of hospitality mean that he has to protect his his guests at all costs. Wow. So that, that that's more about hospitality than it is about homosexuality. That is that is really fascinating, and 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 what yeah. a what an interesting, you know. Like it's impossible for us to impose like our if, any kind of like moral value on that situation because we have no idea what that's about. Right. Seriously. Yeah. There's there's so much more when you try to understand the world behind the text, you understand the text better. Yeah. Wow. That's that's really fascinating. Yeah. Um, I. You know what? Our, our, Couple, couple of quick things before I, I, our time is short. What, um, what projects are you working on right now, or what kind of things are you excited about that that are coming up for, for Dr. Schaefer here in, in a little bit? Schaefer Elliott, <laughs> <Yeah>, excuse me. <laughs> that's all right. The 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 two books I was co-editing were published this last year. So one of them is a, um, a co-edited book, um, in honor of uh, my doctoral advisor. Uh, Diana Edelman. And so that's called The Hunt for Ancient Israel. Um, and that's just a bunch of different scholars writing in honor of her. Um, the other one is the Handbook of Food in the Hebrew Bible and Ancient Israel. And it's all related. It's all food related. <laughs> yeah. So if you're like that kind of thing, that is out. And that's by published by Bloomsbury. Um, I'm co-authoring a book with one of my colleagues from Jessup and um, I'm not sure what the actual title is going to be but it we're kind of tentatively calling it theology from the ground up because she's a theologian and um, she's a Hebrew Bible scholar as well but more of a theologian than I am and of course I do the archaeology side and um, she came up with this great idea. Her name's uh, Libby Backfish. And she came up with this great idea about how, you know, theologians of the Hebrew Bible always say we should take context and con- consideration, but they hardly ever do. <laughs> so um, we've kind of taken about a, a number of topics. And I look at that topic from a cultural and social um, context. And then she takes what I've done and says, how can we understand Israel's theology? um, Wow. How cool. Yeah. So I think right now we just are are writing the the kingship chapter Uh, and that should come out with Baker academic. Gosh, we're behind. So I have no idea. (laughs) It'll come out when it comes out. It will come out when it comes out. And then I am, uh, I myself am just doing some work on, um, how food is used um, to create and sustain memory. Oh. Yeah. And then I'm also r- just starting to work on a book on um, on neighborhoods. So not just because I do a lot of work on 
like a, a spatial analysis, like this a house, a particular house. And now I'm wanting to expand that and go, how does that house function in a larger neighborhood? And um, how does that help us understand how neighborhoods function and in particular, um, you know, women and how they function in those neighborhoods and then I'll use. So yeah, doing a lot of work on still households and daily life and, and food and women. That sounds so interesting though. Like I, Oh, there's so much there that would be so fun (laughs) to delve into. So I I hope you'll come back. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. And thanks for liking, you know, the, the posts on Facebook and Instagram about women's history month. Oh, uh, yes. I really appreciate that. No, absolutely. It's, it's, I think, um, I mean, obviously I, the, the, the scholars that, and in, that inform us are important, but I think, you know, this month it just pay special recognition to the women scholars that are, um, you know, especially in, in, uh, the biblical and, and I think it's really important. I think I mentioned, um, to you, one of, one of mine, now I'm having a, brain freeze i can't remember her name oh my gosh <laughs> anyway but but she does she's a she she does a lot of work with um um temple theology which is really fascinating mm. and um yeah because a lot of people say oh i don't know of too many female old testament hebrew bible scholars or archaeologists and i said what <laughs> <laughs> i won't i mean there's so many of them that i won't be able to even do it justice because i'm just doing it for women's history month um, but yeah, so if, if you're looking for some good female biblical scholars and archaeologists, please check that out. Yeah. Follow, follow Cynthia Schaefer Elliott on Facebook and she's got some really great resources. Um, yeah, let's definitely do this again. Cause there's so please. many interesting things and, and, and honestly, in a way, like when, after speaking to you, it, it kind of grounds me. It makes me feel like, um, I'm more part of that universe and can, and kind of relate and, and just, like I said, it just kind of grounds me in a a special way. So I appreciate you you bringing that to me. Yeah, of course. My, I'm, it's always a privilege to, to take what we do and, and take it to people who, you know, are, are not doing this kind of work, but are interested in it. And I think it's important for us to, to spread the love you are listening to end of love remain the first of 23 installments requested by dr levitt we're trying to be in compliance here because we're taking him and that whole organization down <laughs> <laughs>